Pray with me, Father in heaven. Uh, we know our sin, yet we know because of the work of Christ in us that truth is good and we desire truth within. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach your wisdom to our hearts, that we would embrace, that we would believe it, uh, that your grace would come to us. And, Father, that we'd hear your voice with great joy, with gladness that we would hear it. And, Father, that you would, in your grace, blot out our sins and, in your grace, enable us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. So, cause us, Father, to hear this word, uh, to not neglect it, uh, to not cast it aside. But, Father, to hear it, to believe it, to receive it, and to walk in it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, please. I want to read the whole chapter plus the first two verses of chapter 8. It's, that's, it's a long, long reading, I know. And I'm going to go past 12 o'clock. I know that, too. But stick with me, please. It is very important, I think, for you to get this event in your head and to keep it there for the rest of your life, all right? So I want to read it to make sure you get it. And then if you don't listen to me, that's not so bad. But if you get this, that'll be good. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of God. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things... For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, uh, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Serabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? What that Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded to them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you, get up. Concentrate the, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. 
O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near uh, man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of, uh, of the uh, Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of uh, Carmi, was the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and the donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given, it, I've given into your hands the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And then the rest of chapter 8 describes how they take the city. Now, everything seemed really well. In, in Israel prior to this particular situation. Um, the people had crossed over the Jordan River uh, because it had been stopped by God. They had entered into the land. They had seen the power and the promise of God as the Jordan was stopped. They had seen his power and promise as they took the fortress in Jericho. And everything seemed quite well. And now they're simply to move up the mountain to take this city of Ai. That's the best uh, uh, logical place for them to go if they're going to take this land. Joshua sends out spies, a reasonable thing to do. They come back and say, not a problem. Uh, not that many people in Ai. Uh, we don't really have to send everybody. We send two to 3,000. We should be able to take it fairly easily. And so Joshua says, all right. So he sends 3,000. When they get there, they realize they're in trouble. 36 of them, doesn't seem like very many, but 36 of them seem almost immediately to be killed. Fear enters into the Israelite soldiers at that point in time because they don't know what a casualty really is. 
Because God has always fought for them. And so here, 36 of them have, have died and they begin to think God really isn't with us here. So they turn and flee and they return back. Now Joshua is not only surprised, I suspect, but filled with fear. And he wonders what's going on. And so he begins to pray, he and the elders of Israel. And they throw ashes and dust on their head and all of that to show that they're in mourning uh, and in repentance. And so, so they begin to pray. And Joshua wonders, God, why did all of this happen? Now, we know why it happened, because we had verse 1. Uh, Joshua didn't have verse 1. We're told at the very outset why they were going to lose this battle. They were going to lose this battle because there was sin in the camp. And there was sin in the camp because one of them named, named Achan, had, when they gone, had gone into Jericho, rather than destroying everything and then taking the silver and gold and bronze vessels and bringing them back to the treasury of the Lord, actually took some stuff for himself. And nobody knew it. But God. And that was the real reason. You can read this little incident and say, well, you know, probably Joshua sh should have inquired of the Lord before he went to Ai. He should have prayed then and, and gotten instructions from God, gotten assurances from God. Or maybe they were arrogant, thinking, oh, we can take this, no problem. We just need two or three thousand men, and that's all that we need. Small place. We can just do this on, their, on our own. Maybe all that's true, but that's not the reason God says they lost. The reason God says they lost is because there was sin among them. And so as Joshua begins to pray, or as he ends his praying, the response of God is, get up. <laughs> There's a sense in which you get the feeling that God was saying, you don't need to pray about this, Joshua. You should know what's going on. I promise to be with you. But I also called you to follow me. You know what sin brings. If you're not trusting me as you enter into these places, then I won't fight for you. And if I don't fight for you, you will be defeated, whether you take 2,000, 3,000, or a million. Because the determining factor in Israel always of taking the land was their faithfulness to God, their following after him. And we see at this point they weren't following after him. At least one person wasn't. So God outlines in verse 11 what was going on. He says, Israel has sinned. Very significant expression. He doesn't begin by saying one man has sinned, but he says Israel has sinned. When I, when I hear that, I'm thinking everybody in Israel must be rebelling against God at this point. Same as in verse 1 of chapter 7, where he says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. You get the impression that everybody must be rebelling against God. But that isn't the case. It's just one. Notice how he puts it, verse 11. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant, that is, they disobeyed, that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. God had said, don't take them. God had said, go in and destroy everything. Only take the silver and the gold and the bronze vessels and bring it back to me. There's a sense in which this being the first city they took, God was to be the recipient of the first fruits of what would come from them. And so he says, bring that to the treasury. That's not for you. That's for me. Trust me. I'll take care of you. I'm giving you the land. You'll be able to eat well. You'll have everything that you need. So trust me. Just bring the gold and the silver and the bronze vessels. Bring it in. Don't touch it. We'll keep it here. And it'll be proof to you that I'm with you and that I'll take care of you. So he says, they've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen from whom? Well, from God. 
They've stolen and they've lied. That is, they've hid it. They've been deceitful. And they've put them among their own belongings. They've been selfish. They've gathered for themselves. Verse 12, therefore, the people of Israel can't stand before their enemies. Why? Because they're not physically strong enough? Of course not. But they're not spiritually strong enough. Because these are the enemies not only of Israel, but the enemies of God. And so he said, you can't stand before them in the midst of this sin. So he says, they turned their backs from their enemies because, and this is a, an alarming statement, because they turned their backs before their enemies because they've become devoted for destruction. In other words, he's saying, listen, they're just like the Canaanites now. The Canaanites have been devoted for destruction. Now Israel's devoted for destruction. And so he goes, I will be with you no more, which would have had to send an incredible chill up Joshua's spine. Because the only reason that Joshua had any hope at all of being successful was with, if God was with him. God had said, be strong and courageous. What a foolish thing to say to a man with a reasonably inept army when you're going to go and take fortresses. But the reason God could say, be strong and courageous is because of the way he ended that sentence. He said, be strong and courageous, and courageous for I am with you. And you go, okay, you're coming, I'll be strong and courageous. But now he's saying, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Unless, that is, you won't know my presence unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And so what Joshua is then commanded to do is to have the people to consecrate themselves, that is, to set themselves apart. He says, tomorrow consecrate yourself, meaning whatever you had planned to do tomorrow, forget about it. I want you to come and separate yourself from tomorrow's activities and come and stand before the Lord. So all the people at that point come to stand before the Lord. And then he says, I'm going to shake you down, first the tribe, then the clan, then the household, then the person, and we're going to find this person. And they do it in a way that I don't understand. I don't know how they accomplished this by casting lots. I don't know what they did. But whatever they did, they began then to move from the particular tribe to the particular clan to the particular household. And then through every head of, house, every head of family in that household. And it shakes down and it's this man named Achan. And then notice in verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son... Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Don't hide it from me. In other words, confess. You know, Joshua's saying, listen, God has picked you out from these tens, hundreds of thousands of people. So I want you now to say what you've done. So he does, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, uh, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold uh, weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so he buried it in his tent. And then Joshua then gives the orders to line up everything that he owns, all his oxen, all his cattle, his tent, everything, his sons and daughters. And everything's destroyed. There's a sense in which the name of Achan is wiped out of Israel. And at the end of that, when judgment comes, then God says, all right, I'll be with you. And then he says, go take Ai. And interestingly, this time he says, and all the spoils are yours. Now the question is, 
what are we supposed to take from this? I mean, why is this in the Bible? Of all the things that could be in the Bible, why is this in the Bible? It, it must help us in some way. As we're working our way through the book of Joshua, we realize that the sort of the purpose, the, the ending result here, is to get us to a place where Joshua is at the end of the book of Joshua, which is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we get a sense that we're to keep this incident in our minds and replay it. And that will help us serve Serve the Lord. Because these incidents are kind of like parables. They're real events, so they're not parables in the, same, in the strict sense. But they work like that. They inform us. And in very much the same way that we tell stories to our children about history, about our family. And, and we trust that they'll keep these stories in mind. One of the great things about the men's retreat this weekend, as Darby was praying, is that a few of the men shared some situations out of their lives. And those situations stick in my mind. And I'm able to see, oh yeah, this is how they thought about this. This is how they did that. And that sticks in my mind. This incident is the stick in our minds to be carried along with us. And so the question is, what are we supposed to get out of this when we think about it? First this, and this is the obvious and solemn, but we mustn't ever forget. And that is, first of all, God sees everything. And God is serious about everything. Most especially our sin. God sees everything. We know that. But he's really serious about everything, especially our sin. Uh, the way the preacher, Ecclesiastes, puts it in the very end of Ecclesiastes. This is in Ecclesiastes, um, in chapter 12. And uh, if you can find it before me, give me your Bible. I always have trouble with Ecclesiastes. I'm like, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He writes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And here's the reason why he says that. Here's the, why, here's the reason why he says, um, fear God and keep his commandments. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, everything's important. And everything's important to God. He's the one who'll make evaluation of everything. We read that and we go, boy, that sounds like a real hellfire and brimstone passage. And I suppose it could be, but it's simply true that God is the one who sees and makes evaluation. He's the one who sees and declares right and wrong. And it's important to him. And that's why the focus of our attention, the one we should live to please, is him and no one else. Because no one else's judgment really means anything. Everybody else's judgment is provisional at best or derived from God's at best. He's the one that really matters and everything is important to him. And you know, while we see God as joyful and, and exuberant and wonderful and all of that, one thing that God isn't ever is flippant. Nothing is unimportant to him. Nothing's a throwaway to him. Everything is important to him. And I don't say that to get a big, heavy trip of guilt or whatever on people. It's just true. And we need to remember that. And this story brings it out. Here's Achan. He's thinking, okay, I can take this, put it in my robe, put it in my pocket, hide it. Nobody else seems to have seen him do this. 
I suspect his family knew that it was there because it was hidden at the bottom of the tent. And I suppose when you walk in and you see, you know, the little floor is a little loose right there. You think somebody's hidden something down there, might need an explanation. Uh, But nobody else knew this but God. But he knew it. And that's just true. And it was important. And you might think, in all the stuff that was probably brought back to put into the treasury of the Lord, what's one silly little cloak that should have been burned anyway? I mean, why burn it? Why not take it home? A few hundred shekels of silver and a little bit of gold. I mean, really? Is that a big deal? And the answer is no, in its value compared to God. But yes, because it was rebellion against God. And as we said last week, judgment is real and the wages of sin really is death. God created us. He gave us life. And he says, with this life, I want you to reflect me. I want you to honor me. I want you to glorify me. And, and, and that's wonderful. That's not a bad thing. That's not God putting us under his thumb. I don't know any little boy that if somebody came and whispered in his ear and says, I've created you in the image of Michael Jordan, wouldn't be thrilled. I mean, you go, wow, cool, that would be good. I want to be like Michael Jordan. That's why we have heroes. We want to be like these people. It isn't isn't some restriction on us. But if we can find somebody really great and somebody says, you're going to be just like that person, we'd go, whew, that's really good. And God is saying, forget all of those people. I've created you to reflect me, to be like me in your character, to know what is really valuable, really worth it, and to realize that I'm worth it. Your whole life. And then, of course, justice says if we misuse our life, we do, not, we, we do not glorify him and reflect him, then justice says that our lives will be taken from us. And that's what happens. And so judgment comes and life is taken. The wages of sin is death. And the way Jesus describes that death isn't a non-existence, but it's hell. And he says, that's the place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And you think, that sounds horrible. And you're right. It's the place that Jesus talks about where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the reasons, probably only one of the reasons, my children don't necessarily like watching movies with me is because any time the word hell is used flippantly, I give a lecture. Right in the middle of the movie. People just use the word hell to describe all sorts of things in their events. They had a hell of a good time. It was a hell of a day. It wasn't. Hell is horrible. When we hear the word hell, we really should shiver. We really should not want to even think about it for more than three seconds. Because to think about it for more than three seconds and to think about the reality of hell and the existence of hell and all of that should be more than we can bear. And so everything's important to God. Especially our sin. That's the thing I think when I think about this story. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal. And God knew about it. Second thing. Amazingly, and this is mysterious, and I'm not going to be able to go into all the depths of this because I don't know all the depths of this. 
But amazingly, one man's sin affected the whole community. I mean, again, when I read the first verse in chapter 7 that says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, I'm thinking there's a huge revolt here, and everybody's in rebellion against God. It surprises me to find out it was just one person. But because of the union of the community, the solidarity of the community, the actions and thoughts of one affect everybody else. Now, I don't know how that works. And on the one hand, we we can't really blame everybody else on our life. We can't say, well, the reason I'm having a bad day is because I know somebody at Grace EPC must have sinned. (laughs) Go check underneath their tent. I bet they got stuff. And, And... that's why I didn't get that parking space. You know, that's why I got a cold. No, that's not the point. We're talking about the reality of the presence of God, the experience of the presence of God. And God says, I'm not going to be present with you as a group when there is this sin tolerated amongst you like this. And I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, but I don't even know about it. And God said, not a problem, I'll tell you. I want you to deal with it. So the sin of one affects us, affects us all. And we know that the scripture says that we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into one body. And so we do know that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why? Because we're one body. But we also know that that, that one affects the other in the context of a body. You know, if your eye's not focusing correctly, if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, it affects your whole life. It affects everything about you. And that's true for us as a body. It's true for the body of Christ. I know as a dad, the way that I think and the way that I live affects my whole family. No, it's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondent. You know, correspondence, if I go out and sin one afternoon, I don't come home expecting necessarily my family to be in the shambles. But I do know that my life affects my wife and children. I do know the way that I live affects you. And I do know that the way that you live affects me. Because we're knit together in some mysterious spiritual way by the Holy Spirit. That's why when I baptize these little babies up here, you know, we do so many that sometimes we take it lightly or flippantly or whatever, you know, here goes another one because we we birthed a million children a year around here. Uh, It's really why I keep it so cold in here, you know, the pregnant women and the women over 50 love me. Uh, But, uh, because we have so many at least pregnant women. But uh, when we baptize these little babies, it's quite serious, regardless of my flippancy. It's quite serious because I, I always say, remember, we're to live our lives in such a way as examples to these children that will draw them to Christ. And I hope, after hundreds of these baptisms that we've experienced in the life of our church, and as we think about these things, that you never think you're alone that you never think that your actions are secret, that you realize that you are connected to others and that somehow, some way, that's influencing us all. So that when you're out and about, if you're a businessman and you make a good ethical decision, the good part of that is that I think if that's your lifestyle that affects all of us well, 
But if you make a bad ethical decision and that's your lifestyle and you're connected to us, there's a sense in which the potential is to hurt us all. Now again, we have to be careful here because bad stuff happens. Remember the time that uh, Jesus and his disciples came across a, a man born blind and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, it's hard to translate in Greek, but he said, he said, that's not the issue, that's not the point. It's about the glory of God. Nobody sinned particularly for this man to be born blind. So we have to be careful that we're not blaming everything on something else because we realize, realize the difficulties happen. But in the midst of those difficulties, we live as a strong community when we're obeying God. And when we're not, we're vulnerable. And my sin affects you. And your sin affects me. And we need to keep that in mind all the time. Third thing, this. Last Sunday we talked about the spiritual battle that goes on. And here it is in living color in the life of this man, Achan. Achan ate manna. He was in the wilderness at one point in his life. He was one of the ones that was born in the wilderness as the Israelites traveled. And he's one of the ones then that entered into the land when the other ones died. He wasn't one who was born in Egypt, but born in the wilderness. And in the midst of that, as a young boy and as a teenager, no doubt, he ate manna. Isn't that amazing to think? What would you do? You know, breakfast time, your parents go, go gather some manna, son. Um, and wouldn't you say, where does this come from? And the story would be, well, you know, God provides this for us every day. And twice on Saturday, once for Sunday. And you go, wow, he, that's, that's Achan, that's the person he was. He knew God's provision. And he was there when the Jordan River stopped. And he was there when they were walking around the city of Jericho every day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. He was there when the shout went up. He was there when the walls went down. He was there when they entered into the, land, into, into the city. But there was a time, a moment, when he saw this cloak. And the scripture says that it was a cloak of, of uh, Shinar. Now, the commentaries say that there was a very prestigious garment. And I'm so fashion illiterate that I don't know what any common day... Um, I should have talked to Karen about this ahead of time. I don't know what that means. Uh, for me, it's land's end, but I don't think that's quite as, as good as this would be. But whatever it is, it's highly prestigious. It's the kind of thing that if you owned it, everybody would say, wow, I guess it's the clothing equivalent of a BMW. I know those things. But, being a guy. But, but, uh, but everybody would, and I don't know where he would tell people he got it from after he was wearing it, but, uh, or whoever would be wearing it. But it was a very prestigious thing. He looked at that and said, if I have that, then I'll be considered uh, out of status. And I'll be considered well in the community. And, and here's this gold and silver, what could it hurt? I'll take some just as a stash, just, just for my retirement or whatever, just to have on hand. And at that moment in time, the scripture says he saw it, he desired it, and he took it. And very specifically, the text says he coveted it. I mean, that's a great Old Testament word, 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And it's that 10th commandment that messes us all up. You see, you can, you can externally do 
perhaps, the other nine. At least make people think you're doing the other nine. It's that tenth one that gets at your inner desires. The tenth one says, not only mustn't you do the first nine, but you mustn't want to. Oh, rats. And you see, that's the danger. That was the danger with Eve. As she was looking at the tree, she saw that it was good for food and it was delightful to the eyes. And then she desired to be like God. And then she took it. And she ate it. And that's sin. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law... I would have not known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul is saying, the law is good. But when it mixes with my sin, it actually entices my sin. How evil is that? How wrong is that? So he said, when the commandment said, don't covet, all I could think about was having stuff that wasn't mine. And I began to covet and then it killed me. Uh, James puts it like this in James in chapter 1. In verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He says, that's the nature of sin. We see it. It mixes with our sinful desires. We want it. And then we do it. Now the point of this passage is to say, don't do it. Don't be like Achan. He's not our model at this point. Don't be like him. And so you say, well, how can I keep from being like him? And, and again, the, the, the reason he did what he did ultimately was because of a lack of faith. He didn't believe God. He believed that his desires would satisfy him more than God's promises. He believed that if he could have what he wanted... He would be happier, more satisfied, more content, more fulfilled than if he had what God promised him. God said, don't take. He said, well, what's God know? And we can be pretty hard on Achan, but I think we know we shouldn't be. I think we see that same pattern going on in the context of our own lives. We know what God has said, but yet at the moment, losing my temper feels really good. We know what God has said. But at the moment, telling that lie seems to get me out of a situation. We know what God has said, but that bit of slander at that point in time seems to elevate me pretty well. We know what God has said, but fill in the blank or blanks in the context of your own lives. It can seem to perhaps be about status, wanting more. The promise of God is a day will come. When you'll be exalted with Jesus. And we say, 
that's good, but could I have a little bit of earthly exaltation now? And he said, no. Could be that Achan was after some security. to have all this gold and silver and so forth in his possession. And God says, I'll supply every need that you have. And a day will come when, 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 when you'll know no want at all. Trust me. And pray that I'll give you your daily bread. And we think, oh, that's good and well, but, 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 but. So whatever it is, whether it's seeking pleasure, desiring pleasure, and God says, listen, I will be your pleasure. I will, I will satisfy you. The very core of your being, if you'll follow me. And we say, no, I'd rather have this, and I'd rather have this, and I'd rather have that. It's just a lack of faith. We don't believe that the grace that God will bring to us is more satisfying than whatever it is we're looking at at the moment. That's why James goes on as he talks about being tempted, verse 16. He says, don't be deceived. You see, sin is a deception. Sin deceives us. It says, look, if you have this, you'll be more satisfied than if you follow God. And so James says, don't be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, listen, the good things come from God. Trust Him. Don't trust what you're seeing. Don't trust what you're desiring. Trust what God has promised. Don't be deceived. That's how we fight it. We fight it by faith. We fight it by knowing the truth, by knowing the promises of God, and by praying that God will work in our hearts in such a way that we'll value what he promises over what we see, over what we desire at any one point in time. And Jesus was very serious about this. In Matthew, in chapter 18, uh, Jesus puts it like this, verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for, for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is obviously speaking metaphorically. If we took him literally, we'd all be blind and handless, right? But he's saying, I want you to think about sin that radically. In recent days, there has been, in years, there has been men who uh, have found themselves um, encumbered, stuck. One man that I read about a number of years ago had a tree that somehow lodged against his leg and he was stuck and couldn't get out and no one coming to help. More recently, there was a man who was stuck. uh, A boulder had caught his arm and he couldn't get out. In each one of these situations, these men took a knife that they had with them and amputated that part of their body that was stuck. They thought like this, better to live life without a leg Better to live life without an arm than to stay here and die. And Jesus says, think like that spiritually. Better to live without than to lose his presence and not know his presence. That's how serious all this is. When I think through this story of Achan, that's what comes to my mind. Don't sin. Trust God. Believe him. But then I must confess that I get scared 
because I sin. And I wonder what's, what's buried under my tent. I mean, sometimes I sin so well that I just bury stuff, I'm sure. And it's there. Turn to Hosea quickly in chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. We'll be there in a minute. I just wanted to give you a head start. When Achan was found, they took him to a particular valley. And it was called the Valley of Achor. The reason it was called the Valley of Achor is because the word Achor means trouble. And this is where Achan and his family would find their trouble. Obviously, they would find the very judgment of God. Now, do you know the prophecy of Hosea? It comes through his life. And it comes through the life of his wife. Hosea is called to prophesy in Israel. And he's to prophesy about the unfaithfulness of Israel and the judgment of God that comes because of unfaithfulness. And so he marries this woman, Gomer, and she is or becomes a prostitute. And her life, therefore, symbolizes the unfaithfulness of Israel. And their children, the children that they have together, uh, symbolize the judgment of God against unfaithful Israel. Because the translated uh, meaning of their names is scattered, no mercy, and not my people. And so every time... Hosea would call his people, he would be bringing a word of judgment, uh, call his children, he'd be bringing a word of judgment against the people. So he would call one of his kids and said, hey, scattered, come here. And anybody who would hear him would go, or he'd call to another kid, hey, not, no mercy, come here. Or to another kid, hey, not my people, come here. And so you see, every time he spoke their names, he would be speaking a word of judgment against Israel. And so it's a a horrible story. Gomer is out unfaithful with other men. And then we come to verse 14. He says, Therefore, 